Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Cache Valley residents Roy and Kathleen Snedden have been living with their son's disappearance since 2004. The then 24-year-old David Snedden was last seen hiking in China, leaving no physical trace. The Snedden's of uh, several sources in Asia believe David was kidnapped by North Korea. And the Stens believe their son is likely one of many who've been abducted and held captive in North Korea. In the aftermath of the historic summit between U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore, we'll talk about David Snedden and others who are missing and what this summit and future events might mean for them and their families. We'll talk about the summit in general as well. And our guests will include one of David Snedden's friends, Utah resident George Bailey. Also, we have with us in studio USU Assistant Professor of Political Science Anna Pechenkina. And we begin with uh, Representative Chris Stewart, Republican from uh, Utah, who's uh, who's been uh, following this case, trying to do what he can. Representative Stewart, uh, thanks for joining us. Yes, good morning. Good to be with you. I know you have to board a plane here soon. We're grateful for the time you can uh, you can give us. Uh, so, uh, tell us about your involvement with the Sten case. What uh, what's what's being attempted? Well, uh, my involvement's part personal, part professional. My son actually knew David. They. Uh, they knew each other, having both served LDS missions in Korea. And so I remember when when he was gone missing, and uh, Sean, my son, told me about that, and of course was distressed at, at losing his friend, apparently. And then once we came to Congress, we started uh, started working with family and doing what we could. We've had the resolutions that have passed through the House that required the State Department and the intelligence community to do a little more than they had done up to that point, just to determine what we could. You know, I, I pray that he's alive. I hope he's healthy and that he's okay. But for the sake of the family, we want to know one way or the other. And uh, and we hope that this summit might bring a little resolution to this. Do you uh, do you find that, uh, you know, some, some sources in Asia, of course, Snedden family, they, they believe David was kidnapped by North Korea's living in, in North Korea. Do you, do, you, do you think that's plausible? Well, certainly possible. I mean, I've worked uh, very closely with the Japanese uh, minister and, and other Japanese leaders because they have had dozens of Japanese citizens that were taken, and in some cases they were eventually released. Uh, we know of other uh, Europeans who have been taken as well, although not many. There's, uh, there's a bit of a history of that. So we know it's certainly a, a, a possible explanation, and there are some unanswered questions about his disappearance um, that... Uh, that would lead one to wonder. And I've always been really careful. I mean, I don't know, and I, I want to be as factual as we can. But, but again, if he's alive, uh, we, we hope that he's well, and we want to bring him home. And, and if he's not, uh, and this would help to resolve that for the family, that would be good as, that would be good as well. So either way, we, we look forward to finding a little bit of progress. I believe China's, uh, the Chinese government's official position still is that uh, David Sten uh, died. Uh, out, yeah, out and, and that that's not surprising. I mean, the last thing that China wants is to have uh, a U.S. citizen that disappeared in their country and ended up being abducted by North Koreans. Uh, so I think they would default to that position. And, you know, um, again, we don't know. Um, China hasn't been incredibly helpful on this. I don't think they've obstructed the investigation at all, but they haven't been terribly helpful. Uh, but it shouldn't surprise anyone that that would be their position. And, you know, and it might be true. Again, I, I try to be so careful on this not to indicate uh, that we know one way or the other. Um, we just want more information. What, so the, the, that's, the, that's the ask, I guess, from, from Congress, at least from you and the, the others who are working on this, that uh, more information, more information from, uh, and what would you like the State Department to do or the U.S. government? Well, yeah, more than anything, we have tools that were never brought to bear on this. The intelligence community, there are, uh, there are, you know, methods and, and resources that we could use that we think would be helpful on this. Uh, we would like to use our allies, the Japanese being one of them, as they've been selected on this, uh, the Chinese obviously and Chinese leaders being another. Uh, so we, we just want to keep pressure to bear until we feel like we've had a resolution. And, uh, the key to this, obviously, is the North Korean leaders, Kim Jong-un. If, if there was an American captive inside North Korea, I promise you he would be aware of that. He would have certainly ordered that. Uh, and I think that's why this summit is, is very helpful and promising for us, is we can open up a relationship with them that's based on, on some mutual trust, if it's based on what we absolutely need in the, in the bigger national security scenario, and that's the denuclearization of North Korea, but if a sidebar to that is that we give them information on some of these abductees, the, the Japanese and others, then 
that, that's a very good thing as well. We uh, bring in uh, George Bailey, who joins us by telephone. Uh, George Bailey is a uh, former uh, roommate, I believe, of Davidson, a family friend who's been active on this case. George Bailey, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Do you, uh, do you have a uh, question for the congressman? Congressman Stewart on with us. Yeah, I, I love listening to Congressman Stewart talk about this, and I've been on another interview where uh, he was also involved as well. And, and uh, first of all, Congressman Stewart, I want to thank you for the hard work you've put in on this case. I look at what you and what Senator Lee, Senator Hatch uh, have done for David and his family, and, and I'm just so impressed. My question would be, uh, what do you think it's going to take to pass this resolution in the Senate, Resolution uh, 92 from last year? Well, you know, people ask me, well, first, let me say thank you for your kind words. And, and I want you to know that I'm driven by helping this family. And uh, part of it is, again, personal because of our relationship with David. But part of it is just the right thing to do for the family. So this is an easy thing to be involved with. To your question, oh, my gosh, it is frustrating sometimes in Washington, D.C. It's frustrating to do even simple things like this. Now, we, we had the resolution have success in the House. And and, uh, and and keep in mind, this isn't a piece of legislation. It doesn't actually change law. It just brings to bear pressure of the United States Congress on the State Department and on the intelligence community. I think we can achieve some of that even without the resolution passing through the Senate. Um, you know, just the public perception and the, and the public pressure can make quite a lot of difference. Programs such as this that where people are talking about it can make a difference. Uh, but, you know, we need to use every tool at, at our disposal, every opportunity we can to talk about this and to inform people and, and to involve uh, the, some of the decision makers to get them to do everything that they can do. Uh, so, Congressman, I know we have to let you go here pretty soon. Um, I'm wondering just more broadly on, on the uh, summit. What do you think of yeah. this, the summit and what, what do you think the next steps should be? Well, you know, I take all of this with a, a, a level head if we could. I mean, two weeks ago when the summit was called off, uh, I was asked by the media you know, a dozen times, well, I guess this is over. I said, no, it's not over. This is, this is going to have highs and lows, and today I think is a very good day, and it's clearly one of the highs. But there's a lot of work still to do here. Um, to have an agreement in theory and an agreement in principle is, is a beautiful thing. And we should be very grateful that we could eliminate or might, might be on the brink of eliminating what was in many ways some of the most dangerous uh, situations we face on the international stage. But there's, as I said, a lot of work to do. Uh, to have Kim Jong-un and the president sit down together is a wonderful step forward. Uh, but now we need, uh, the, again, the intelligence community, the military, the State Department, all of those structures that make up the United States government to do the hard work of putting an actual agreement in place and then being able to verify it. And that's the key to this thing is promises are one thing, but we know there's a history of North Korea of making promises and not keeping them. And it's so important that we have a real, a real positive but a real, uh, a real affirmative structure to really understand are they complying are they are they doing what they so, said we would do do you uh, how hopeful are you that uh, that the u.s and north korea and i guess the other parties involved will get to such an agreement verifiable agreement you know i've been asked that frequently over the last well several years and years ago i would have said you know i was not very optimistic and six months ago i said you know i think the door might actually be open uh, part of it is I trust the team around the president. Mike Pompeo is a close friend of mine. I think he was brought over the state exactly for this reason. Um, and, uh, and I, and I'm really quite optimistic now. I think, I think Kim Jong-un has maybe reached a tipping point where he realized his future was extraordinarily bleak if he didn't engage with Americans on this. And so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not naive, but I'm very hopeful. And, uh, and it might be this could be a generational moment in U.S. Uh, diplomatic and national security policy. Uh, finally, Congressman, what, what do you think this uh, might mean? I, I suppose this has to be a hopeful sign for uh, families like the Snedens that uh, at least there's yeah. there's talk happening, right? Yeah, exactly. And like I said, uh, we, we were able to bring home three of our prisoners last month. Uh, I think this will open the door for us to find out more information. And, and if, uh, if we find out that he is... Uh, He's actually there. It will certainly, it will certainly learn that and be able to make changes in regard to that. 
Thank uh, you for allowing me to come on your program today. I've enjoyed it. You, you bet. Uh, Congressman uh, Chris Stewart uh, has joined us, and we appreciate him uh, taking the time to be with us. He has to board a plane uh, here soon. We have with us uh, George Bailey, who is uh, – George Bailey, you live in the Provo area, do you? Where do you live? Oh, actually, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. You live in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, I, I guess the BYU connections is what would led me to uh, assume you were. You, <laughs> there was a time. There, there was, was a time. With okay, Utah and all things Utah. <laughs> so you're joining me. Yeah, in the lead up to the program, you asked me time zone questions, and I thought, well, why is he asking me time zone questions? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it makes sense now. Okay. All right, and uh, George Bailey, we have uh, with us in studio, I just want to introduce the two of you, uh, Anna Pechenkina, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at uh, Utah State University, and uh, she'll be providing some context on the summit as we as we go along after we talk about uh, David Steddon's case. So appreciate having Professor uh, Pechenkina with us. Glad to be here. Uh, so, George Bailey, uh, I want to uh, have listeners understand um, the, the David Steddon's uh, story. Um, and uh, so uh, maybe we could start with uh, with with China. Uh, I believe you were were you over there with him? You're studying language there. Yes, I was. Uh, David and I <clears throat> uh, we actually met back in the fall of 2003 as roommates at Brigham Young University. We lived in uh, what they call the foreign language student residency. It's a uh, basically a housing unit or complex where everybody in a given apartment speaks a foreign language together to practice it. And we were roommates in the Chinese house, decided to go to China together to improve our Chinese and to work on it. And so David went there first, secured an apartment, and I went there second. Uh, and we were uh, living together for about a month before we did our travel uh, to Guilin, China, where we last saw each other. And then I think in August of uh, 2004, he decides to he's going to get some hiking in a uh, beautiful area of China, Yunnan province, and, uh, and yeah. he- heads out. Uh, last seen at the, the far end of uh, Tiger Leaping Gorge. That is correct. His family um, was very meticulous in covering David's trail and finding clues for what had happened to him. In the aftermath of his disappearance, his brothers decided almost on a whim to go out themselves to investigate, and their father, Roy, went with them. So they investigated all along the trail, and they found witnesses who said, you know, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy. And this is not a, a crazy claim at I, uh, either, because David would uh, definitely stick out like a sore thumb in China. He was Caucasian. Uh, he wore braces, which, you know, are not that frequently seen in China. Uh, he spoke fluent Korean and was learning Mandarin, was quite good at it. And, you know, and just he was the kind of kid that would stick out. So when you see, a, you know, this, this young American who speaks Korean, that jumps out to you. And so they had about six witnesses that whose credibility they uh, measured on a scale that all said, yeah, we've seen David. And those witnesses spanned the entire, the entire trail, including uh, at least one witness at the end of the trail, a Korean woman who worked at a Korean restaurant there called the Yak Bar. And she became very excited when she saw the picture of David and said, yes, not only had I seen him, but he came to my restaurant three times and spoke Korean with me. So I think that that sighting at the end um, pretty thoroughly debunks the, you know, uh, Representative Stewart said earlier that, uh, you know, the Chinese official position is that David died in the gorge. But that last sighting alone should raise a lot of questions. The, the the Chinese government theory is that he uh, slipped and fell into the into the gorge was uh, was drowned. I guess the, the the evidence on the other side is uh, every one of the people who slipped in the gorge, their bodies have been found. Yes, yes, and that is true. And there's been no no evidence whatsoever to indicate that David died in the gorge, and there's been evidence to the contrary. So. Um, buttressing this this theory, you know, we don't have absolute evidence, do we? That, that David was, was kidnapped and lives in North Korea, but but a lot of a lot of evidence which would point in that direction, including um, the the fact. I guess to start with the fact that North Korea does this or has done this this routinely, right? Uh, kidnapping uh, foreigners. 
Yes, that is correct. And, you know, and I've actually been confronted with this question quite a bit. Like, there is no evidence. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence. One thing I want to say about circumstantial evidence is if you were to, you know, go to a court of law and say, well, all we have is circumstantial evidence, you know, the, the court would determine the case then based on the weight of that evidence. So, you know, circumstantial evidence should not be used as a way to kind of brush aside like, oh, well, there's nothing there. Rather, now we need to take that evidence and weigh its credibility. Many cases have been proven either by a preponderance of the evidence or beyond a reasonable doubt using only circumstantial evidence. In David's case, then that raises the question, how weighty is the circumstantial evidence? And it's actually quite significant. And just to name a few factors, I I would think, um, you know, I can't kind of thoroughly make the argument here, you know, that okay, I'm going to list every single point. If you really wanted to see a thorough analysis, I would go to the uh, Resolution 92 that the Senate is now working on. It's pretty thorough in listing out everything there. But I'll name a few things you know, here just for your, your listeners to um, pay attention to. One of them is that the um, NARCAN, which is a Japanese association, uh, has... Let me see the acronym: National Association for the Rescue of Japanese Kidnapped by North Korea. This is a nonprofit that has meticulously uncovered the abductions of numerous Japanese uh, back in 2002 when Kim Jong Il was negotiating with um, Junichiro Koizumi. He even admitted to this abduction program, which was being used to fuel the North Korean intelligence system. So, so we know it's there, you know. And then Narkin, of course, uh, turned up with uh, numerous bits of evidence that there was, in fact, an American being held in North Korea uh, to help feed this intelligence apparatus. And it's not just Narkin, but also the abductees' family union in South Korea, which is led by Choi Sung Young. They are the ones that broke the news uh, almost two years ago, in September of 2016, that David was not only being detained in North Korea, but the purpose for his detention was so that he could become the English tutor to Kim Jong-un. That was the shocking news that made waves that fall and, and continues to intrigue a lot of people since. You know, So the, the evidence is out there. These people have been doing their homework, and I think that what... Representative Stewart said that was so important is we, as a country, have the means to be able to pursue this further and to verify that this evidence is, in fact, true. I I personally belong to the camp that believes very strongly that David Snedden is in North Korea. Now, uh, uh, another point here that uh, I've learned in doing research in this case Apparently, it's well known in some circles that Yunnan Province is uh, is sort of an underground railroad uh, place, and and there's a sort of a hidden war going on, right? Uh, this is where uh, people are over there trying to get uh, defectors from North Korea out, and there are agents from North, North Korean government to trying to discourage that, um, get get them back in. To build on that further, in the year of 2004, the year that David disappeared, there had been so many. Uh, North Koreans who had slipped through China, through Yunnan province, and into Laos, Vietnam, Myanmar, um, that it was a little bit of an embarrassment for Kim Jong-il at the time. And so he actually strengthened, uh, strengthened kind of surveillance of that area during that time. So Yunnan province would have been a hotbed of North Korean activity And again, a lot of people don't realize this, but North Korea does engage with China militarily. And China does allow for, you know, North Korean agents to come in. And, you know, and I don't know the full scale of that allowance, but North Korean agents do come into China to enforce or to resist this underground railroad. David was uh, abducted you know, at, at a place in Yunnan province where that activity was known to be going on. And then you look at David's profile. You know, if, if you were to ask David, well, wow, you speak Korean. Why do you speak Korean? Well, I, I was a missionary for my church in South Korea. And all of a sudden you've got this kid who's just, he really fits the profile of somebody who may have been helping along the Underground Railroad. Now, I don't think David was. 
uh, during all my time with David in the months leading up to his disappearance, and I was with him a lot. You know, this was not going on. David was not about to do this, but it does cast a certain suspicion on him, which makes his arrest and detainment all the more realistic. Now, uh, of course, there are, there's organization organizations in Japan. Big issue in Japan. Uh, imagine big issue in South Korea. Uh, this issue not as well known in in the U.S. It doesn't seem to be the energy behind it. Uh, why do you think that is? Absolutely. And and you'll notice that today in the news, for example, a number I, I went through in a number of English publications from Japan talked about this issue and said, well, Trump did you know, or at least Trump says he did, discuss with um, Kim Jong-un this issue. And so they're hoping, and, uh, you know, Shinzo Abe is one of the biggest advocates for these Japanese abductees that I've ever seen. So, yeah, this is a real issue. On my Twitter feed, I've gotten uh, a couple different, like, actually, my Twitter feed, when I've tweeted on this subject, all of my best reactions have come from the Japanese. Mm. All of them. Yeah. They have so much passion on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the U.S. State Department. What's the what's the official what's the official version of events from the from the State Department? They've more or less conceded uh, to the Chinese line of thinking that David uh, died in the gorge. Uh, that's one of the things that I've actually found most problematic about all of this is that it's so patently false that I think that it's it's not a good idea for the U.S. State Department to kind of back China up in this. I'm not saying that I would like to see contention on the matter. I'm more or less the same. You know, I would love to see world peace and all that. But I don't think that that requires that we, you know, say to China, like, oh, okay, you know, we'll take you wor- your word for it. But that has more or less been what we've, we've said. And uh, when asked on this subject, like, for example, in the fall of 2016, when news started to arise that David had become the tutor for Kim Jong-un, the U.S. State Department simply brushed it aside and said, we have no verifiable evidence. The The bigger problem with that is that when you say there is no verifiable evidence, but you also do nothing to verify, then it, it seems, um, you know, again, I'm not trying to create a conflict with the U.S. State Department. I know many people in it, and I think they work hard, but this statement does create a little bit of a, a conflict. You know, I feel like, okay, well, go verify. Talk with Narcan. Talk with these organizations in South Korea that deal with the same thing. You know, as Representative Stewart was saying, we have the apparatus. We have everything it would take to be able to verify or disconfirm the claims that these organizations have been making about David. Are there other uh, cases, other, you know, uh, officially unsolved disappearances that uh, the, the people are suspicious that maybe North Korea is involved? And I guess a related question, um, Kim Jong, uh, uh, Kim Il's, uh, which one? Kim Jong-il uh, did admit, right, in negotiations with, uh, with Japan that of abductions has the, has the regime admitted since that they've, that they've continued? Really good question. So when, uh, uh, Junichiro Koizumi was able to uh, convince Kim Jong-il to confess to the abductions of Japanese nationals. His confession was to 13 different abductions, five of whom were returned, and the other eight, uh, their death certificates were returned. It's believed that some of those death certificates were forgeries. I don't know. I, I have no standing on which to, to render judgment on that. Um, but beyond those 13... There have been, I believe, and I believe I have the numbers right, but you'll have to kind of check with these later. There have been an additional five that North Korea has not uh, confessed to. And, you know, the, the pattern with all of these unfortunate families is that they go for years wondering where their daughter or son or mother has gone. And people think that they're crazy. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, you have those people back in Japan. And I, that's, you know, that's the parallel I find very striking here is that, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I'm very engaged in this process now is because I look at the Snedden family and for years that, you know, they, they've gone on. And I think that in the state of Utah, they found a tremendous amount of support nationwide. I would not say that that support is so strong. And I have seen instances of people just saying, he died, he ran off with a woman. 
you know, this happened, uh, he got sick of life, whatever. And, and so the, I think that I would love to be able to lend whatever support I can to the Stentons as possible. Having studied this case very thoroughly, I find their claims very convincing. And, uh, you know, and I feel for the Japanese who are going through this exact same. As for U.S. instances, I'm not aware of any besides David. There's uh, there's a website, helpfinddavid.com. What, what's the ask? What uh, what would you have people do? So I am not um, involved in that website, but I do monitor it regularly just to get more information. Um, but my understanding of the ask is a public awareness campaign. I think that the, and at least on my side, I can only speak for myself here. I can't speak for the Snedden family. I'm not an official representative for them, but I'm a friend. Um, my ask at the very least, and I think there's a similar, is as the public becomes more aware and cares about this, that puts pressure. First of all, it creates interest among the media because the media is going to go where the interest is. And the media will then create pressure on the State Department. I find it, for example, a little bit off-putting that, you know, that when asked, the State Department has, when asked about David Stenton, the State Department has simply said, oh, we have no verifiable evidence. I think that not to follow up on that displays a more incurious character than I would like to see from the media. I would like for them to ask questions, okay, you see no verifiable evidence, but uh, what efforts are you making to verify? That, that's, one, that's part of my ask, is to get people curious enough in this that the media feels pressured to put the real questions to the State Department. And again, I don't want to antagonize the State Department at all, but I want them to recognize that this is an issue that we as Americans really care about. I also, in addition to that particular ask, I would love for people to contact their local representatives. If the Senate is having a hard time passing this uh, resolution and, and to, re- to um, kind of repeat what um, Congressman Stewart said, this is not legislation, this is a resolution, but I would love to see that resolution passed so that that statement from Congress to the state department is made that this is an important issue to the american people let's take a break and when we come back we'll uh, make a transition to talking about the summit in general we'll bring in uh, professor Pechenkina um and uh, george bailey uh, okay to stay with us Would you like to stay with us let's make this Absolutely. transition okay yeah. uh george bailey is a, a friend of david snedden's um he is a utah man last seen in 2004 in yunnan province in uh, china uh, the, the several sources in Asia and the family believes that um, David Snedden was kidnapped by North Korea and is uh, living there uh, to this day. And, of course, this comes on the heels of the historic summit between President uh, Donald Trump and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. We'll continue this discussion following this break. <laughs> you know, laughter is this kind of clumsy, inarticulate way of expressing ourselves, but it's also kind of awesome. Here's a question. Why do we laugh? What is laughter for? On the next Radio Lab, we wonder about the mysteries of laughter, from a baby's first laugh to an outbreak of contagious laughter in Tanzania. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Andrew WK's music is full of inspiration. Live your best life. Don't give up. Hardy hard every day. It turns out that's not Andrew talking to us. He's talking to himself. Andrew WK sits down at the piano and opens up. It's coming up on Q from PRI or Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are talking with George Bailey. Uh, he lives in, it's, uh, where is it again, George Bailey? St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Um, I'll get it by the end of the program. 
um, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> um, he joins okay. us uh, to talk about. He, we've been talking about David Snedden. He is a Utah man, uh, last seen, uh, 24 years old at that time, 2004, in China. And uh, sources in uh, Asia and the family believe that uh, he was kidnapped by North Korea. A uh, very timely uh, uh, point to talk about this, of course, with the historic summit just having happened between uh, President Trump and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Um, we're going to make a transition now to talking about the summit, and we bring in uh, USU Assistant Professor of Political Science Anna Pechenkina. So, um, Professor Pechenkina, uh, you study conflict resolution, peace processes, is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I study uh, international relations and armed conflict in general and obstacles to peace. Okay. Um, so, um, w- what did you think of the of the summit, first of all? Well, I think the uh, representative uh, that um, said earlier on the program that we should give credit to the administration is correct. I think the Trump administration uh, making North Korean issue their priority, that is a very positive step. And also, um, are we today in a better place than we were a year ago? Yes. At the same time, Um, My main concern is for this administration to learn the mistakes that took place in the previous attempts to negotiate with North Korea. So uh, what I mean here is that um, in some respects, I think we we do see um, that some of those mistakes have been learned. For example, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, just today he was uh, speaking after the summit, and he did mention the the necessary step of seeking the approval of the Senate, of the United States Senate, of this agreement. So that is a clear um, signal that this administration will try, at least attempt, uh, to seek bipartisan backing of this deal to prevent the dismantlement of this policy by the following administration. Mm. So something that we saw uh, the Trump administration do to the Iran deal. Right. Um, uh, And I think that is a very good step for them to take. I wish the Obama administration sought uh, the Senate approval of the Iran deal uh, to prevent the the Trump administration's step on the Iran deal. So that that is a very good thing. Now, um, if you think about the potential complications here, is, um, of course, the lack of specificity. And by no means, I anticipate in this very short four-point declaration. In a way, we should think of this uh, agreement that they signed today as an inauguration of future multi-decade lengthy and complicated negotiation process. Hmm. So the the vagueness and the lack of specificity here, that's completely expected. That 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 is fine. Uh, the main thing here is to remember that in the previous agreements that the United States signed with North Korea, um, the lack of specificity was interpreted with uh, by North Korea and by the United States very differently. For example, in February 2012, the Obama administration signed an agreement which was called the Leap Day deal with North Korea, and that deal specifically Uh, put a moratorium on the long-range missile testing. And we know for a fact that both sides agreed on the language because even the North Korean state TV uh, said exactly the same words. They they did announce on their television program that there is a moratorium in place on the long-range missile testing. So what can possibly go wrong? Like Mm -hmm. Both sides agree on exactly the same language. And yet in April, uh, North Korea started... Uh, uh, launched a satellite. So for the Obama administration, that was a violation of the spirit of the agreement. But for the DPRK, they said, wait, that wasn't in the technical uh, text of the agreement. So for them, they were arguing that it was technically legal for them to do. So similarly, in 1994 agreed framework, uh, when the Clinton administration signed that framework with North Korea, they specifically said that uh, the dismantlement of the nuclear reactor will follow. And the North Koreans agreed to that. But because that particular agreement did not spell out that any uh, uranium enrichment will be prohibited, North Koreans were arguing that 
technically, they were not violating that agreement. So I hope that the Trump administration is very much aware of that, and they will seek, uh, you know, like not just kind of put on paper a vague phrase like verifiable, right? Because that's kind of the main criticism today, that they didn't have the word verifiable. But I hope that they will put in concrete steps of what will they will consider a violation of the agreement. And um, in general, they will approach this with a lot of technical expertise, I hope. Mm. Uh, how, um, I'll ask both, uh, both you, Professor Petrinkin and, and Mr. Bailey, what role or how much of a priority should human rights be as part of this? It seems like uh, the Trump administration is, you know, sort of de-emphasizing that to try to get uh, talks uh, started here. I assume that the, that will be a part of the negotiations. Uh, the North Korea is known as one of the biggest violators of human rights uh, in in the world. Let me start with Mr. Bailey on this. Do you, you know, and this would fold in the, the Snedden case, right? The David Snedden uh, human rights. The yeah, absolutely. Nation should yeah, not yeah, be yeah, kidnapping yeah. other other uh, four four nationals. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to think that that's a kind of a basic, you know, <laughs> no kidnapping. Mm. But I, you know, it's it's a serious question, and I think that it, it requires a serious answer. And I've thought a lot about this because, you know, in making the ask for David's release, uh, or in making the ask to President Trump to address this issue, I realized that denuclearization is a much bigger issue. And I've always acknowledged that. I've always acknowledged that. Like, look, if we can denuclearize North Korea, and you know, kind of decrease the tension there is between our two countries, that is a really big deal. And so I try not to lose sight of that. You know, I, we all have our pet causes, and if my pet cause consumes me to the point that I overlook the importance of denuclearization, I think I've, I've skewed my perspective a little bit. However, there is an important relationship, and that is that if you cannot trust Kim Jong-un to address the abductee issue within uh, human rights, I don't think that you can really trust him a whole lot on denuclearization. And so I think that there is a connection, and that's why I'd like to see the two concurrently addressed. And they are compatible. There is nothing, there's no inherent conflict between the two demands that the United States uh, should be trying to make of, of North Korea. And you would hope that, again, that if they address human rights issues, that that is a great way to show that they are acting in good faith and a desire to be normalized and to have sanctions listed and such. So, Professor Petrichina, same question, human rights, and, you know, kidnapping of foreign nationals is only one part of it. Uh, You know, prison camps and, uh, you know, very... Stalin-like conditions in in North Korea. Yes, uh, Gulag-style camps are are, are definitely a feature, not a bug, of the DPRK system. I think uh, you are right to separate those two. In other words, um, it it will be a fairly um, doable um, concession for the DPRK to release more hostages. Uh, At the same time, for the United States to demand that the totalitarian regime um, of of the DPRK, for for them to close labor camps. I don't think that is in any way on the radar here. So um, when we are speaking of human rights in this context, truly we can only be concerned with a very narrow definition of how North Korea behaves uh, against the citizens of other countries, I'm afraid. Mm. So, Professor Petrichino, I'm um, going um, on your website uh, here, and uh, a paper, this is an abstract of paper that mm-hmm. you uh, wrote, uh, is uh, fascinating to me. You say, you and your co-author, uh, illustrate uh, possibility by uh, analyzing the impact of U.S. foreign aid on patterns of conflict and peace between Israel and her neighbors. Our analysis indicates that the termination of the rivalry between Israel and Egypt was most likely not brought about by the Camp David Accords, or peacekeeping operations, but by sustained foreign aid provision. So you know, by the United States. By the United States. Yes. So you know, we tend to look at it as as leaders getting together, summits mm-hmm. like the one we just had in Singapore, and that's what moves the needle. But you're saying there are other 
the other factors that this might apply to North Korea and and U.S.? Yes, and the United States has uh, demonstrated that it is possible to maintain peace in seemingly impossible situations. We forget, but sustained peace that we have seen between Egypt and Israel uh, seemed um, unachievable, incredible in early 1970s, and yet it became a, a reality thanks to the United States' strategic um, uh, bribery. And I mean it in a positive way. Uh, literally, the United States is providing uh, military aid to Israel and Egypt, and we have demonstrated quantitatively that it happens that these um, uh, allocations of aid increase during the times of tension, during the times when you would anticipate uh, a potential military confrontation between those two countries. So the United States is uh, capable of uh, bribing nations into peace, if you will. Mm. So, for example, you can think of the North Korean situation as a trade as well. Uh, North Korea is suggesting that it may consider trading its leverage, which is uh, the possession of the nuclear arsenal. And as of November 28, 2017, very recently, they possess long-range missiles that can reach North America, right? So this is a complete paradigm shift. Uh, And they're suggesting that they may consider the trade uh, of their nuclear arsenal in exchange for lots of economic development, and security guarantees. Now, uh, when they say denuclearization, what they really mean is not just the dismantlement of of their program or the freeze on their program. They really mean that the United States will withdraw eventually from South Korea. So that's a really big concession. And of course, the United States should not provide that concession or even consider it without verifiable steps of a complete dismantlement of the North Korean program. Mm. And it, it seems like this is on President Trump's mind. He's, he's talking about, uh, you know, we can make you rich, right, to North Korea. We can, we can change the picture economically. Yeah, good for him. Uh, that is exactly... <laughs> I hope that uh, the North Koreans... Um, and I think we do have the evidence that Kim Jong-un um, is considering um, that uh, is um, um, kind of taken into account how the economic prosperity of his country is affecting the stability of his rule. So potentially in our lifetime, we could see a situation in which uh, while politically a North Korean regime would uh, would maintain itself as a totalitarian, authoritarian, what we call in political science, personalist regime, which is a regime that is completely structured around the uh, the cult of personality, around one person. Yet, they may follow, and I hope they do, they will fo- I hope that they do follow the Chinese uh, model of liberalizing economically, meaning allowing market reforms, allowing private property, denationalizing large enterprises, and allowing foreign direct investment. Hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the Libya model. This was uh, this was famous in the lead-up to this uh, summit. In fact, it had a part in the temporary derailment of the, of the summit. And if you're Kim Jong-un and you hear the words Libya model, that's not a positive. Um, so I want to talk about that and uh, more about the summit. We have with us uh, Professor Anna Pechenkina from USU and uh, George Bailey, uh, who's a uh, family friend uh, to uh, the Sneddons. David Snedden, who's a missing American man, a family believes he was uh, kidnapped by North Korea. He's living in North Korea right now. More following this break. <laughs> you know, laughter is this kind of clumsy, inarticulate way of expressing ourselves, but it's also kind of awesome. Here's a question. Why do we laugh? What is laughter for? On the next Radio Lab, we wonder about the mysteries of laughter from a baby's first laugh to an outbreak of contagious laughter in Tanzania. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. U.S. and North Korean leaders met in Singapore. President Trump said he was optimistic. They've been tremendously successful. And it's my honor, and uh, we will have a terrific relationship, I have no doubt. It's not clear what success means, 
We'll examine what both sides want and look back at other history-making presidential summits. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about uh, North Korea and the U.S. The summit uh, happened recently between uh, U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And uh, we've been talking about the case of David Snedden, who was 24 when he was last seen in China. The uh, sources in Asia and family believe that he was kidnapped by North Korea, living in North Korea. Before we get to the Libya um, model, um, George Bailey um I wonder, I'm guessing that uh, the case of uh, Joshua Holt, freed recently from Venezuela, uh, it's, uh, it's got to give the Snedens uh, some, some hope. It's a different Absolutely. situation, but I, it's, I look at, you know. Yeah, I look at what, uh, again, Utah here, um, you know, even though I'm not living there, I've been looking at what they've been doing for their citizens, and that is a really big deal. I'm not sure if either of you had the opportunity to watch that video in which Warren Hatch was there to reunite Josh Holt with his family, but it was really beautiful. And I have similar hopes for the Snedden family. So uh, in active involvement from elected officials, I guess that's a key factor? Absolutely. Um, I think that it's it's going to require, uh, for, at least in David's case, I think that a lot of positive pressure can come from uh, particularly U.S. senators. Mm. Uh, and and again, what to cover this a little bit? What loop around to this again, George Bailey? Um, the summit has happened. It, it's got to be a positive to have an opening here. At least the two sides are talking. Um, how do you think uh, that you know that the family's going to want this on the agenda as they go forward? Right. Absolutely, and I think that it's an, it's important. You know, I've been uh, contemplating this a lot lately, and just feeling like that's all the more reason to be able, for the United States to put pressure on its representatives and on Trump, because if you look at Japan and you look at Shinzo Abe and you look at the care and concern that he puts into this issue, so much so that he made it a point to fly out last Thursday to the White House to make sure that Trump was going to, you know, or at least, you know, Japanese papers have been reporting that this is the case, to make sure that Trump would address this issue, that to me is really something special, and I hope to see that same thing happen in the United States. So, Professor Petrenkina, the, the Libya model, which, of course, the Libya model refers to the the U.S. and uh, Libya made an agreement. Uh, Gaddafi gave up his uh, nascent uh, nuclear program, and a few years later, he ends up dead. Yes, indeed. Um, you're right to say that. Gaddafi uh, gave up his nascent program. In fact, uh, the centrifuges that he gave up were still packed in the original crates in which they were shipped. That's how undeveloped that that program was. And uh, supposedly there were some security guarantees. Um, In 2004, when he gave up um, the the what, what could be potentially developed into a nuclear program, so, of course, Libya at the time uh, is uh, not comparable to North Korea today, uh, which I think we have to accept is a, uh, is a nuclear state with long-range missile capability capable of reaching North American cities. Like, that is a fact today. That was not uh, Libya at the time. Now, um, what do we say when Gaddafi ended up dead, and is it truly the the fault of the United States? In 2011, uh, President Obama uh, was considering whether to stop the imminent invasion of um, uh, one of Libyan cities, if I'm not mistaken, Benghazi, uh, where the popular uprising was taking place, and the Gaddafi troops were surrounding the city, and there was an anticipation of a large-scale massacre of civilians. And so Susan Rice and Samantha Power, who were the um, quote-unquote liberal hawks within the administration, very much concerned with uh, securing human rights, they um, supposedly convinced President Obama um, to intervene and uh, to side with the rebels, such that the uh, um, the um, advancement of the Qaddafi troops was stalled. 
after that, the rebels, um, like after the tide of that civil war was changed due to the United States intervention with its uh, NATO allies. After that, Gaddafi was captured by the rebels and violently um, killed. Um, in fact, supposedly that made a huge impression of Vladimir Putin, who couldn't stop watching the tape of the murder of Gaddafi. So that is what people mean by the Libya model, where you give up the leverage uh, that you have against invasion, uh, kind of the security guarantee of your regime, and then uh, the country that the United States in this case that uh, promised to not invade, does invade once the, another administration comes to power. So, in fact, uh, President Obama did reflect in one of his interviews that perhaps that was a mistake. I think he phrased it as not thinking about the day after in Libya, after the Libyan invasion, that was one of the bigger mistakes. I would also like to, to mention that uh, another country uh, has suffered a similar fate, uh, the country of Ukraine. Uh, where uh, it inherited nuclear weapons mm. in 1991. Uh, there was a security guarantees provided by the Russian Federation and by the United States uh, and um, the United Kingdom. And then um, in 2014, of course, it was invaded by Russia. Um, a part of its territory was annexed. And then as of today, uh, part of its uh, eastern Ukraine regions is also de facto controlled by Russia. So uh, we have at least two examples where countries were explicitly pr promised sovereignty and yet their, their sovereignty was violated. Mm. So we just have about one minute left. I wonder, is there uh, these, these examples certainly won't be incentives to Kim Jong-un to, to uh, you know, denuclearize, at least as the U.S. defines it. Uh, do you think there's a peace process that could happen without that? Yes, if the United States changes the definition of what they believe has to happen. I think, uh, kind of as of today, it looks like Chinese uh, pr um, proposal of a freeze for a freeze, where the United States is freezing its exercises and North Korea is freezing its testing. Uh, that is the likeliest outcome. In other words, uh, for... And, and I hope that domestically the Trump administration doesn't get attacked too much. So in a way, the Iran-style nuclear deal is probably the likeliest and the best we can hope for. I just hope that domestically the Trump administration can survive it after the rhetoric that they have engaged in. Hmm. And uh, that remains to be seen. There, there's a lot of Trump derangement syndrome, and uh, as there was a lot of Obama derangement syndrome. <laughs> that seems to be our t our politics for today. Uh, finally, just 30 seconds, George Bailey, What uh, any information you'd like to give uh, if people can uh, feel inclined to help with David Steddon's case? I, I think that just one last little tidbit on negotiating. I, I've loved all of the remarks that uh, Professor Pe um, Pechinkina has made that you know, I, I think that one of the big fears is that David Stenton's case brings up a little, uh, you know, discomfort in the sense that uh, he was allowed to be abducted in China to North Korea, with whom we're now trying to make friends. And I think that there's a way out, and that is that we essentially say to North Korea, hey, it was Kim Jong-il, who is dead, that did this, and it was under the rule of Hu Jintao, who is no longer in power. And I think that there really is a way out. And so, you know, if you're able to write to your senator and just encourage them, that's great. Uh, I, th I really think that there's a way out uh, for David. All right. All right. We'll leave it there. George Bailey, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, Thank you so much. Anna Pechenkina, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah today. ...to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.